Before I pray, just a personal addition of my own welcome to the mothers among us on all the campuses. And uh, I want to take special note of the white roses that are on all of our campuses to my right and left and tell you, uh, in case you don't know why those are there, um, we do this every Mother's Day weekend in order to acknowledge the sorrows of the day. We think of miscarriages. We think of stillbirths. We think of lost little ones from leukemia. We think of lost 60-year-old children. So those bouquets of white roses are there for you to come and take one when we're done. And please, uh, don't hesitate to do that. And let it be sweet. Let it be sweet. I hope enough time has gone by that perhaps the pain has mellowed into a sweet memory. And so mark it. It would be good for you probably. At least that's our intention. So we're glad you're here. All of the, the mothers. And I'm thankful for my mother with Jesus, and I'm thankful for Noel, who's with me, and what a gift to have raised five children together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we are now to meet you in the word and to be helped. So speak to us. Help me to be faithful to the Bible and to be humble before the Bible, submitted to the Bible, to exult over the truth standing forth from the Bible. So honor yourself now in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I returned from the leave of absence a few months ago, Noel and I sat down with the elder care committee who's to watch over our pace of life and They suggested that on the weekends when I do five hours of teaching on Friday and Saturday, I preach a classic sermon, (laughs) meaning one that's familiar and already in the 31-year repertoire, whatever. And I thought, hmm, hmm, that's a good idea for two reasons. One, it does take some of the pressure off so I can just give myself to those five hours and, and not think, oh, now I've got to fit a sermon in here as well. But the second reason is it enables me to go back and do some foundation building or pillar strengthening of um, what I would call just foundational seminal truths that we've loved for decades here and newer people may not even realize this because there are a lot of newer people around. And so all the series that I've done on this or that way past, they don't know that. So this is one of those sermons. I don't know whether classic is the right word, but a pillar strengthening is. And the pillar I'm choosing to focus on for the next 40 minutes or so is the pillar of the truth of Christian hedonism, which is what I've been talking about all weekend. And the reason I said the pillar of the truth of Christian hedonism is because I don't care about the name. I care about the truth. If you don't like the term Christian hedonism, forget it. 
doesn't matter, don't offend me. I'm just going to tell you what it is, show it to you in the Bible, and give you about nine implications for our life together of what it is to be built on this kind of truth. So that's, that's where we're going together. Here's the, the single one summary statement of Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's the one sentence summary of what I mean by Christian hedonism. And it has astonishing implications for life and life together. When you've been in a place for 31 years and you've been saying these kinds of things and people have been going and coming, churches sort of uh, get a mind about things and a feel about things. And there come into being documents that embody things. After the Bible, the most formative document of this church is the elder affirmation of faith. And so what I did was review the elder affirmation of faith, which all of your elders sign on to, what they believe and what they teach, to look for the truth of Christian hedonism. So I'm going to read you now a a whole lot of paragraphs. No, it's just lines to move fast. I want you to feel, I want you to feel what I feel when I read the elder affirmation of faith. So, paragraph 2.2. This is online. You can get it. I do hope you read it. It's a worshipful experience to know what your elders believe. It's about 12 pages without text and 40 pages with text. We believe that God is supremely joyful in the fellowship of the Trinity. Each person beholding and expressing his eternal unsurpassed delight in the all-satisfying perfections of the triune God. 3.1, we believe that God from all eternity in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and everlasting enjoyment of all who love him did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. 4.1, we believe that God created the universe and everything in it out of nothing by the word of his power, having no deficiency in himself nor moved by any incompleteness in his joyful self-sufficiency. God was pleased to cre- to, in creation to display his glory for the everlasting joy of the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 4.2, we believe that God directly created Adam and Eve. Adam, we believe that God directly created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side. We believe that Adam and Eve are the historical parents of the entire human race, that they were created male and female equally in the image of God without sin, that they were created to glorify their maker, ruler, provider, friend, by trusting his all-sufficient goodness, admiring his infinite beauty, enjoying his personal fellowship, and obeying his all-wise counsel. 
12.1. We believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. 13. We believe that the, we believe the ultimate aim of world missions is that God would create by his word worshipers who glorify his name through glad-hearted faith and obedience. 14.2, we believe in the blessed hope that at the end of the age, Jesus will return to this earth personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly in power and great glory. We believe that the righteous will enter into the everlasting joy of their master. And those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness will be consigned to everlasting and conscious misery. 14.3, we believe that the end of all things in this age will be the beginning of a never-ending, <clears throat> ever-increasing happiness in the hearts of the redeemed as God displays more and more of his infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment of his people. And there are others. But you get, you get the feel. Joy in God is woven through the doctrinal affirmations of this church. We're built on it. We believe it. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so it's, it's fitting from time to time that we rebuild some of the pillars. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you to Philippians 1. And if you wonder why John was read, I'm going to close with it. Philippians chapter 1. If you were to ask me what one passage of the Bible would you go to for the most, for the clearest defense of the sentence, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him? Where would you go? And my answer is Philippians 1 20 to 23. So I'm just going to walk through that briefly with you, and then we're going to unpack nine implications of this truth. So, verse 20, and just a little aside. June 13, July 13 will be my 31st anniversary here. I candidated for this job that I've had in February of 1980. And that sermon is online. Every sermon I've ever done is there. It's just, I, I, so I went back and listened to 34-year-old me preaching this text. I listened to about five minutes of it. I couldn't take any more. <laughs> I just, I don't want to listen to me. This is weird. It doesn't even sound like me, you know. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> but it should say something to you that the first word I delivered in 1980 is this word. Okay. Because this is the most central word about why we're on the planet. I know. So starting in verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope. And that's what I felt as I came to this church. It still is. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ, who is God incarnate, Christ will be, now some of the translations are honored, magnified, 
will be made much of. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, now pause there. What's his goal in life? That Christ be magnified in his body. When his body talks, when his body uh, looks a face, uh, makes a face, when his body stretches out its arms, when his body walks, everything he does in his body, I want Jesus to look good. That's the point. I want Christ to be honored, magnified, made great in the world. That's his goal because that's the goal of the universe. I'd I, I take an hour to defend that statement if, if this were a seminar, but we just sum it up. So here's his goal. I want Christ to be magnified. Now, the next sentence begins with four and explains and underpins how can that be? How can Christ be magnified when you die and when you live? So I'm just going to take the die piece because it's the one that's clearest, okay? Let's, let's see them both, though, as we read it. Four... To me to live, and that corresponds with whether by life, is Christ. And to die, and that corresponds to or by death, in verse 20, is gain. Now, ponder with me. This is what we do at Bethlehem. We, we read text and then we ponder, meditate, think. My goal is that Christ be magnified. So that's the first half of Christian hedonism. God, or Christ, who is God, is most magnified in Paul when... Okay, now where are you getting Paul is most satisfied in him? And I'm getting it from the word gain in death. So think with me. Paul says, I'm going to magnify Christ at any cost in my life and death. So I'm going to magnify him in my death for to me to die is gain. Just think it through for a minute. How does that work? How is Christ made to look magnificent in the death of a human being? Answer, if the human being counts death gain. But now we're assuming something. We're assuming verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two, that is, living and dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's what death will mean for Paul. Okay, now we know what gain is. Gain is Christ. Gain is more of Jesus. Now I have his spirit, but I live by faith and not by sight. I look through a mirror dimly now. I want him whole, clear, and crisp, and verbal, and tactile. I want all of him. And I want to be done with sinning so I can see him clearly. And Paul says... That's what happens when I die. And therefore, now, let me fill it out. I lose everything on the planet. If he were married, like I am, he would say, I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my children. I'm going to lose my grandchildren. I'm going to lose retirement plans. Whatever that is. I'm going to lose. I'm, death means it's over. It's over. Everything you felt, everything you touched here is going away. There will be a resurrection someday, but death, you've been stripped of your body. This is very painful. And he says, when I consider all that I'm losing here, which was once gained to me, and gaining Christ, I say, such a deal. 
which I just take to mean he's more satisfied in Jesus than he is the world. I don't know any other way to make sense out of gain. So that's where I get it. Christ is more magnified in Paul's death because in death, Paul is more satisfied in Christ than anything. And that makes Christ look really good. That's it. I could go to other texts, but that's enough. That's where I get it. Christ is most magnified in me when I am most satisfied in him, especially at the moment when I lose everything but him and call it gain. Implications. Here we go. Number one. There's nine of them, and we'll see how much, how much time there is. God himself, most fully revealed in Jesus, is the supreme value in the universe. That's why verse 20 reads the way it does. It is my eager expectation and hope that now, as always, Christ might be honored. From him... Through him, to him are all things, to him be glory forever. So foundational in this church. No, if you're newer here, God is the supreme value in this church. Not me, not the building, not the program, not the music. God is the supreme value here. And we seek ways to experience that and show that. Number two, joyfully treasuring Jesus above all things in life and death displays that value better than anything. Joyfully treasuring Jesus, especially at moments when great loss is happening to you in your life. Valuing Jesus at those moments of loss are the moments when Jesus will look most precious to you from the people around you. We believe at Bethlehem that God is glorified in worship when we delight to worship, not dutifully worship. And our favorite story, my favorite story anyway, is the rose story. So raise your hand if you've ever heard the rose story. Not many. That's okay. Good. I get to tell my story again. I wasn't going to tell it if everybody raised his hand. So here I am. We could do it for Mother's Day. Let's do it for Mother's Day. I'm making, I'm making this up. All right, we did it once. No, well, not did it once. In fact, we put it on video. Um, so I show up tomorrow, let's say, and I have bought, oh, let's, let's say the yellow daisies, Noel, for good old times. That was the, what we did for years is yellow daisies on every occasion. So I've got a huge bundle of yellow daisies, and I ring the doorbell, and uh, Noel comes to the door and she's perplexed why would you live here why are you ringing the doorbell and and I say happy mother's day Noel and she goes oh Johnny they're beautiful why did you and I say it's my duty (laughs) I've told that story a hundred times and people always laugh you almost didn't laugh (laughs) people always laugh they laugh at duty duty is a beautiful thing a good thing and the people are laughing at it. Why? It's a good thing. You laugh. You should laugh. Because you're laughing at the stupidity of this husband. It's my duty. That's why I brought you these flowers. That's what husbands do. I've read the books. <laughs> what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. 
Noel does not feel honored at that moment. There's something about dutifully worshiping. It just doesn't honor. So let's rerun the tape and do it right. All right? Ding dong. Come to the door. Happy anniversary. I'm a happy, I say, happy, happy Mother's Day, Noel. And uh, she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, I couldn't help myself. I love to buy flowers to you. In fact, I've made arrangements for Talitha. We're going out tonight because there's nothing I'd rather do tonight than be with you. And never in a million years would she say, you are so selfish. All you ever think about is what makes you happy. <laughs> now, that was a totally, a totally my joy statement I just made, wasn't it? I can't help myself. I love buying you flowers. I have a plan to do what I really want to do tonight, namely spend it with you. What I really want to do. Why, why doesn't she get upset at my selfishness? Because she's a Christian hedonist. That's why. She knows this awesome truth that wives are more glorified when their husbands are more satisfied in them. And now I'm just saying that's an analogy to worship in this room. When we're singing, if you're here and you're saying to God, I'm just, this is what I'm supposed to do. I've read the books. Christians do this. We come to church on the weekend and we uh, sing and we pray. And uh, sometimes we lift our hands. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, God. Be impressed. He's not honored. But if you come and you say to him, I'm here because I want to be here. I love you. Then he's honored. That's number two. Joyfully treasuring Jesus above all things in life and death displays his worth. Number three, since God is the most glorious of all beings, and since that glory shines most brightly when we are most satisfied in him, Therefore, here's the the controversial, radical piece of Christian hedonism. Therefore, it is our duty to pursue the greatest, longest happiness in God every hour of every day forever. (laughs) Did I overstate it? Not at all. It is your vocation to pursue your joy in God 24-7 Till eternity is over, which it never will be. That's the implication of this. Psalm 16 tells us where the greatest and longest happiness can be found. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Finish it. Forevermore. If you can offer me pleasures for 800 years, 99% proof, I'm saying no, thank you. Because I know a place where it's 100% proof forever, and I'm taking nothing less. If it kills me, I'm taking nothing less, and it's killed thousands. This This is not a health, wealth, safety, security, prosperity gospel. This is helping you get so satisfied in God, you're willing to die to get more of God. 
and to help other people get more of God because that helps you get more of God in them. Psalm 100, we are commanded to pursue our joy. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4. <laughs> I was in a seminar one time with a, a, a person, a leader. You all know if I, if I told you who it was, but I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to critique. And this person said to me, I don't think you should say pursue your joy. I think you should say, pursue obedience. We were in England doing a seminar together. Do, pursue obedience. And I said, oh, let me think about that. That's like saying, don't eat apples, eat fruit. Isn't it? Here's John Piper saying, pursue your joy in God. Pursue your joy in God. And here's this person saying, no, 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 don't do that. Pursue obedience. I'm saying, wait a minute. What is obedience? Doing what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Delight yourself in the Lord. That's apples. Of course we should pursue obedience. I'm just talking about one of them. One of them that people forget all the time. One of them that people are afraid to pursue because it feels wrong to pursue it. The Bible commands us, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Serve the Lord with gladness. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command. If you pursue obedience, you pursue that. I'm just talking about one of those pieces of obedience. I don't think it convinced that person to change but it confirmed me. Number four, when we say you should pursue your joy in God all the time, no exceptions, we do not make a God out of joy. We say that you have already, already made a God out of what you find most pleasure in. We don't worship joy. We say joy in God is worship. Get it? We don't worship joy. Joy is not the object of our worship. Worship is delighting in God, treasuring God, cherishing God, embracing God, trusting God. These affections that are rising to eat the bread of life and drink the fountain of living water and cleave to the infinite treasure that Christ is, these are not our God. That's our worship. He's our God. So if somebody comes along and says, oh, you Christian hedonists, you make a God out of joy. I say, what? You make a God out of everything you take joy in supremely. So tell me, tell me what you take joy in supremely, and I'll name your God. That's true. Number five, the aim of corporate worship is to awaken and express, awaken, stir up, and express together our joyful admiration of all the wonders and works of God. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O 
God, my God. You have never, ever, ever in 31 years heard me criticize you for coming to this service to get rather than to give. Which some pastors do. I have heard pastors whip and spank their congregations. If you folks would just come in here to give and not to get all the time, we'd have some life in this church. What? God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. I don't eat the blood of bulls, eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats. The world and everything in it is mine. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. I'm the giver in this affair. Don't come to me and make me a beneficiary of your beneficence on Sunday morning or Saturday night. I'm the giver here. Come hungry. Come thirsty. Come bankrupt. Come foolish. Come needy. Come. If you come to me to eat, you come to me to drink, you come to me to get fullness, you come to me to get wealth, I will be glorified. It it really does create a certain feel in the worship service if you believe that God is supremely honored when needy, broken, hungry, thirsty people admit they can't find what they need anywhere in the world and they're coming here to find Jesus. And they want from me a banquet. This is my, let's see if this is a separate one. No, I think this is here, yeah. My job, you wonder, what's your job at Bethlehem? My job is to take this barn full of glorious food and spread a banquet for you every week where your hungry soul can taste and see that God is good. That's my job. As a Christian hedonist, I'm after one main thing, The glory of God magnified in your being satisfied in him by his spirit through his word. That's what I'm after. It dictates my life, how I think about my own prayer life, my own quest for joy in my own life, what I do with this book as I'm studying at home. I am not into merely altering your ideas about God. The devil has right ideas about God. He doesn't love him. He doesn't enjoy him. He hates him. What would that do? But if I could give you right ideas and so exult over those ideas, so pray the Holy Spirit down on you, maybe you would start being satisfied in him. This is what I'm after. Number seven, the aim of all discipling, all Christian relationships is to help each other maintain, increase and maintain our joy in God above all things. If you ask me, what's a small group about? What's personal discipling about? It's all about helping each other increase and maintain joy in God. Listen to this amazing statement from 2 Corinthians one twenty four about Paul's goal for his ministry. This, is, this should be your goal in your small group, 
in all your friendships and all your relationships, this should be your goal. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describing what his apostolic ministry is. And I think it's every Christian's ministry. I don't, you get in a small group, a small group leader shouldn't say, I'm not here to lord it over your faith. I'm here to work with you for your joy. That's what he should say. When you have a one-on-one discipleship, you're trying to help brand new believer grow in grace, you should get together and say, I'm not here to lord it over your faith. That's God's business to create and, and faith. I'm here to come alongside you and work, work with you for your joy. That's what we should say. Transforms everything in the way you think about it. That's number seven. Number eight. Seeking your greatest and longest joy in God severs the root of sin. This is huge. So what's, what's the view of this church about the best way to help people stop sinning? Holiness, sanctification. What's the best way do we believe? And it starts like this. We don't believe anybody sins out of duty. You don't get up in the morning and say, I don't want to sin, but I really should, so I will. Nobody sins out of duty. Why then do you sin? Answer, sin makes promises to you and you believe them. It promises you happiness. That's pure and simple why people sin. Sin lies to you. Convinces you. This pornography might be short-lived, but it'll be worth it. Getting out of this marriage, yep, that's the best way to do it. That's the best way to get happy. Pick your sin, the one you you do. Why do you do it? Feels good, that's why. (laughs) Maybe short, but it feels good. So, how are you going to fight this fire? Promises are being made to you by sin. You'll be happier be stronger, you'll be more famous or whatever. It's just lying to you like crazy. And the answer is you sever the root of that sin by a superior promise. Namely, joy. Listen to this. Let's take a concrete example. Suppose you struggle with the sin of covetousness and greed. You want money, you want money, money. You just have to have more money. And money makes you feel secure, makes you feel peaceful, makes you feel powerful, and money is your God. How are you going to kill that? How are you going to sever that root? Listen, this is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. How? Be content with what you have. How? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So how do you fight covetousness then? You pursue contentment. How do you pursue contentment with what you have? By reminding yourself of the promise and believing it. It is more valuable to hear almighty God who owns the universe say to you, I will never leave you than it is to have all the money in the world. That's how you kill covetousness. 
You sever the root with the power of a superior promise. To hear God Almighty say, I will never forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, what can man do to me? That's number eight. Finally, number nine. The pursuit of joy in God is essential. In other words, we're saying here now that feelings of joy in God, contentment in God, resting in God, delighting in God, pleasure in God, satisfaction in God, pick your favorite word, is not icing on the cake of commitment. It's part of the cake of Christianity. It's right at the core of what it means to be saved. Start over. The pursuit of joy in God is essential not only because God is glorified by it, but people are loved by it. Pursuing your joy in God is essential to loving other people. I close with this one because... It seems the most unlikely. A life devoted to your happiness sounds to some people like, you're just selfish. That's what you are. You're not a loving person. You're just all concerned about yourself and you don't give a rip about other people. And if that's the fruit of Christian hedonism, then it's wicked. Because the Bible says the end of our charge is love. The goal of our charge is love from a a pure heart, sincere faith, faith, un, faith unfeigned. Why do I think that? Here's a story from 2 Corinthians 8 of Paul motivating the church in Corinth with the amazing love and generosity of the church in Macedonia. So I'm going to read a three-verse description of Paul's description of a church that he is in awe of because of their love. And I want you to ask, as I read it to you, what is love? What is love? Three verses, not defining love, just describing it in action. Here goes. We want you Corinthians to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The grace is coming down. Powerful grace, transforming grace, saving grace, coming down. For in a severe test of affliction, oh dear, the people that got saved are, are, are coming into affliction In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, which obviously isn't based on circumstance because affliction just increased, and their extreme poverty, so the grace that saved them didn't take away their poverty, this abundance of joy has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's just wild. Wild. That's wild. So, what's your definition of love now on the basis of that story? I'll say it again. Grace came down in Macedonia. Affliction increased around the people who are are being saved. Affliction. Their poverty, which is extreme, didn't go away. And that joy that they had 
in the affliction, in the poverty, overflowed in what? Liberality, generosity for the poor saints in Jerusalem. I call that love. So did Paul in verse 8. Here's my definition of love then. Love is the overflow, I get that word right out of verse 2, is the overflow of joy in God's grace which meets the needs of others. There it is. That's my definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God's grace that meets the needs of others. If you lock up His grace inside of you, and it doesn't produce any outward impulse to draw others into it, you don't have it. Because there is something about joy in grace, joy in a crucified Savior, joy in a loving God. There is something about that kind of joy that just pushes. It, it, it pushes out. It wants to expand itself into the lives of other people. I'll put it another way. Love is the grace-enabled impulse to increase itself by including others in it. The grace-enabled impulse. Love is the the grace-enabled joyful impulse to include others in it. And you all, any veteran Christian in this room knows that when God uses you by a word or your hands to bring some of his joy in you into others, yours doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. You know that. You put your head on the pillow at night and you sleep better for having been a giver. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, 35. So, I'm going to argue, you better not be indifferent to whether you're joyful in God for the sake of love. That's what love is. Love is joy in the grace of God extending itself into the lives of other people. Two illustrations of this, leaders and husbands. I'm a leader at Bethlehem, by definition, that's what elders are. And here's a text addressed to you and me as to how my joy relates to your benefit. This is really important. I'll read it. One verse, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's what you should be enthusiastically supportive. As long as your leaders aren't sinning or taking you into some wicked plan, enthusiastically supportive of their dreams for the church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And here comes the key sentence. Let them do this. Let the pastors, the elders, do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now think this through. This is one of these these think things. Okay. If he says pastors should do their work joyfully, not groaning, because if they do it with groaning, it will be of no advantage to the people, and I want you to get an advantage from my ministry, so I must pursue my joy in my ministry for you. If I say, it doesn't matter whether I'm happy here, what matters is whether I do my duty. Preach, visit, evangelize, counsel, administer. I get it done. 
I don't like it. This would become a sick church. It would become a sicker church. (laughs) We're all sick. It would become a sick church. Happy pastors make healthy people. Because the Bible says so. Read the sentence again. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, husbands. Husbands, the point here is you can't love your wives if you don't pursue your joy in God, in them. And I'll read it to you from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You start to get the feeling, oh, Jesus really died for us so that he have a pretty bride. He likes having a pretty bride. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Hmm. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it you don't intentionally stick your thumb under the hammer and if you hit it you you don't say get out of the way stupid You, 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 you cradle your thumb that's a little picture of no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. That whole argument is love your wife because you're your wife. Find her happiness because it's yours. Seek her happiness. It's yours. If you then say, oh, I don't buy that. I'm not going to seek my joy in loving my wife. Well, now we're back at the door. Ding dong. I'm here because it's my duty. No way. This is a miracle, guys. We are called to find our God-centered joy in the God-centered joy of our wives. And therefore, you should study them. Like it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, live together with her according to knowledge as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a queen. You're a king. You're heading for glory together. Find your joy in her joy. Don't be indifferent to your happiness. Just seek it in the right place and in the right way. Okay. Um closing the implications could go on and on and on God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him that's Christian hedonism that's one of the pillars of our our church and you've heard nine of its of its practical implications therefore you should be relentless and unwavering in your fight for joy it should be your vocation That's why you read your Bible. That's why you do everything you do to crucify all the temptations to be more happy in other things 
and to seek to find your fullest satisfaction in God. And now I close by pointing to the text that was read. And this is a great note to end on. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus says to the disciples who were about to be sad because he would die, but then would be glad because he came back to life, he said this. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That is an amazing statement. The sovereign Christ of the universe says, nobody will take your joy from you. I won't let them ever. So the joy you may have in Jesus Christ, in knowing and trusting Jesus, is a joy that is full and solid and eternal and invincible. Nobody can take it. Nobody. Let's pray. So, Father, the reason for this sermon is to help us pursue and fight for fullest joy, not in our circumstances and not in the people around us mainly, but in you supremely so that the axe is laid to the root of all our sinning and the power to love people pours through. So we ask that in Jesus' name.